Greetings, and welcome to First Impressions, a production of Marginalia Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Thanks for listening. Joining me today is Amir Hussain. He's a professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University, and today he's here to speak to us about his new book, Muslims and the Making of America, published by Baylor University Press in 2016. Welcome, Amir. How are you? Great. Uh, Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, this is a really exciting book, and I think it's one that all listeners should should pick up because it's definitely intended for a broad audience to go through, and you've, you've written it in a way that makes it appealing and enjoyable read, so thank you. So in this book, one of your goals you talk about is addressing some common misconceptions about Muslims in America, specifically that they're, they're new, they're foreign, they're threatening. How do you go about dismantling these myths in the book? Yeah, and, and it's a hard thing to try and do because there's been so many years where you've had those kinds of stereotypes. So, so the book came out, you know, last year, just before the the election. But of course, these issues were there long before uh, the 2016 election. You know, and so part of it is helping to understand first of all the history that you know Muslims have been here since the beginning. And so the the very first line of the book, you know, there's never been an America without Islam. You know, the idea that oftentimes we're not aware of, of that history. And then part of it, trying to address some of the, the ways in which Muslims have made contributions to what it means to be American and trying to do that in more, as you said, popular kinds of ways. So looking at sports figures, looking at entertainment, figures, looking at cultural producers, you know, that that kind of thing. I think that that's where you need to go with this, that, you know, I've, I've been teaching now for 20 years in the U.S. doing research and work on American Muslims, and there's lots of very good scholarly work out there. But this, you know, book is really meant for a general audience who may not go to a journal and read a scholarly book about this thing or that thing with regard to American Muslims, wants to have some sense of, you know, who are Muslims and what have they contributed to America? One thing you do at the end, which I really like, and I think it does help people get into kind of the material in, in an interesting way, and perhaps a way to combat maybe a polemicist notion that, well, what have Muslims contributed to America, right? We don't really need to know about this. And you use this analogy of American Muslims are sort of like Merle Haggard. Can you, can you flesh out that analogy and <laughs> yeah. what you're trying to illuminate through that? Thanks for that. So as you can probably tell, you know, I'm a a country music fan. And it was sort of fascinating that I was writing the book and it was finished before Muhammad Ali died, you know, in June of 2016. And thankfully, I was able to, you know, go back and edit and rewrite, you know, parts of the book, because I'd written about Ali, of course, in the present tense, you know, and, and then he passed away. And then you realize, well, there's another person. I mean, there's lots of people who passed away in 2016, but Merle Haggard, you know, passes away. This sort of legend of country music who's not that far away from me, maybe 100 miles away in Bakersfield. I'm in Los Angeles. Bakersfield is maybe 100 miles away from L.A. And I loved the music, you know, before I came out here. And so for me, there was this kind of connection. that If you look at someone like Merle Haggard, you know, He's not the most important 
country singer. I say that as a fan. He's not the most important, you know, country songwriter, even of his generation. You know, he went through periods where he, with Waylon and Willie, he was an outlaw. He went through periods where he was almost like an American icon, you know, with Oki from uh, Muskogee. And so I, I think for me, that was a perfect metaphor to say, that's us. And I say that because I happen to be both an American Muslim and someone who writes about American Muslims, that that's us as American Muslims. You know, we're contributors to what it means to be America. It'd be ridiculous to say that American Muslims have contributed the most to America. Um, you know, that would be crazy. That would be like saying Merle Haggard is the greatest, you know, singer in America or the greatest songwriter in America. That That's simply not true, even though he may be a favorite of people. But you can't deny that America would be very different without Merle Haggard's music, particularly that sort of, you know, Bakersfield sound that, that he and Buck Owens did. And so for me, that's the kind of analogy with American Islam, that we're here, we're part of it. You may not think about us, you may not like us at, at points in our history, but we're here and we've contributed to this project that we call America. I want to get into some of the descriptive topics you, you go through in the book, but perhaps because I'm a little nerdy, I want to kind of maybe tap into a more theoretical question that you don't necessarily address in the book, but I'm, I imagine you work through in terms of deciding what to include here. And that's this question of Muslimness. And later in the, in the book, you, you talk about, you know, and as you've already said, there's lots of American Muslims that are artists and comedians, politicians, musicians, etc. And they want to be recognized as artists and comedians and musicians and not necessarily as a member of a religious or cultural group. So when we're thinking about the cultural history of Muslims in America, where should we draw the boundaries? And when and why is it important to make those identities and backgrounds explicit and visible, even if the artists or the figures don't do that themselves? That's a great question. And I think so part of it is this idea that, you know, who do we think about when we think about Muslims in America or for that matter, Christians or Jews? You know, are we only talking about, let's say, religious professionals? You know, that would be a very, very sort of narrow subset. I mean, no one defines Catholicism just in terms of Catholic priests. You know, how do ordinary folks live out their whatever Islam, Catholicism, Judaism? So part of it is that certainly when you're talking about artists, for example, Chance the Rapper isn't a Christian rapper. You know, he's a rapper who's deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. But he's not out there doing, you know, Christian rap or Christian rock, that kind of thing. It's a very sort of narrow subgenre, you know, in the same way that a Yasin Bey, the current name for uh, the man who used to be Mostef, you know, isn't a, a Muslim rapper in the sense that 24-7 he's rapping about Islam. He's a rapper. He happens to be Muslim. Islam permeates his, his music. And I don't think you can understand his music without references to Islam, just like I don't think you can understand Chance's music without references to Christianity. So I think... There's a couple of things there, you know, one is, are we looking at the full spectrum of Islam? You know, do we think of Muslims, and I steal a line in the book from my friend uh, Reuben Firestone, who's a rabbi, you know, here in Los Angeles at Hebrew Union College. He says, look, we think of all Muslims as Hasidic Muslims. You know, we think of Muslims as men with long beards and baggy clothing with the most conservative interpretation of their tradition. Now, we have those in the Islamic tradition, to be sure. We also have liberal, progressive, secular, you know, uh, kinds of folks there. And oftentimes we don't think of them as Muslims, even though they self-identify. So, so I'm not talking about people who no longer identify. I'm not talking about people who say, you know, I was born into a Muslim family but I never really identified with religion. And the minute I had a chance to, you know, get out of it, I, I, I did. You know, that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about people who in their ordinary lives will do 
extraordinary things. So, for example, you know, I, I didn't include in the book because it's, it's a contemporary thing, not a current thing. Not that far away from me in Venice, California, the offices of Snapchat, which went on a, a really a huge initial public offering, an IPO, a couple of weeks ago. The guy that did that IP was a Muslim guy. And so do you include him, you know, in a subsequent edition? Say, look, here's a Muslim businessman. Here's one of the most important business figures in this country who happens to be a Muslim. You know, the kind of work that he does, you know, as a businessman has nothing to do with his Islam, let's say. But you also can't say that, you know, there are no Muslims involved in business. There's some Muslims who are really key in business. So I think that's one of those things. Like, you know, what's the, the full range of Muslim religious life? Two, it's precisely that sense of, you know, and we know this from other religious traditions, that are you a Christian just in the one hour that you're in church, you know, or are you a Christian in the rest of your week? You know, are you a Muslim in the, you know, one hour that you go for the Friday uh, afternoon prayer? Or even if you do the daily prayers, you know, at most that takes maybe 30, 35 minutes, you know, in a day. And so are, are you a Muslim just the time you're praying? Are you a Muslim just the time you're fasting, you're not the fasting? Or are you a Muslim, you know, as you live your lives? And so I think that's important, too, to talk about the idea that you have people who are Muslims who aren't necessarily, you know, outspoken figures about Islam, but for whom Islam is important to them. Now, some of the people I pick, you know, like Muhammad Ali, for example, very clear that when he refused induction to the Vietnam War, that's as a Muslim, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, when he retires and starts writing now for Time magazine and starts writing about being an American Muslim, he's very clearly writing as an American Muslim. You know, when he's playing basketball, he just happens to be the greatest basketball player, but he also happens to be Muslim. And now part of that, I think I'm smiling as I say this is, you know, I think of my Jewish friends who do similar kinds of things. You know, when you're a minority tradition, whether that's a religious minority or an ethnic minority, you can always point to the people in your community who who do these amazing things say you know that guy's jewish uh you know that guy's a, a muslim you know that guy's a canadian you know in the majority culture you don't have to uh, to do that because you sort of take it for granted in the minority culture you're almost you know uh, having to uh, uh highlight these figures uh, you know who belong to your tradition whatever that tradition is because you you've kind of talked about muhammad ali a little bit already and you focus a, a great deal on him in the book why do you think publics don't recognize his muslim identity and why is Islam so central to understanding who he was? Yeah, and so I think part of it is just the nature of the time. But what I'm going with that is, you know, April 28th, 1967, when he refuses induction into the, into the army for the Vietnam War, that's very clearly as a Muslim. When he changes his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, that's very clearly uh, as a Muslim. And so, you know, in the mid to late 1960s, we were very clear about Muhammad Ali's Muslim identity. And a lot of folks had issues with that, you know, commentators who wouldn't address him by his name and called him Cassius Clay. You know, Howard Cosell is one of the few that would actually call him by his chosen name. You know, where I'm going with this is in the 60s, Muhammad Ali very much was a Muslim. Once he retires, once he moves out of the public eye, we tend not to see him as much. Except, of course, in 1996, I write about this in the book, you know, this phenomenal moment in 96 at the Atlanta Olympics where he lights the cauldron. And it's this amazing moment where Janet Evans, you know, passes a torch and there's Ali. And here's this sort of kindly old man with the Parkinson's. And this is, you know, 20 years before his death. So in the 20 years before his death, I don't think we thought much about him. We thought of him more as this sort of kindly old man. But he was very much a proselytizer for Islam and would do these interesting things like, you know, give out pamphlets, you know, like the Jehovah's Witness do about Islam, except, of course, he would sign them knowing that people would keep them because, hey, you got a piece of paper with Muhammad Ali's signature on it. You might actually keep it. You might actually read it, you know, and so he was very much someone 
who was sort of driven by Islam. And then, you know, perhaps part of that is the 1960s, you know, where for so many uh, African-Americans, conversion to Islam was as much a political issue, you know, rejecting the sort of uh, status quo they saw in white Christian America as it was a religious issue. Now, for other folks, it was a it was a, a theological conversion. So I talk about, for example, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who says, yeah, I didn't convert to Islam because of political reasons. I was already a political guy. I converted to Islam for theological, spiritual reasons. Like, this resonated more with me, you know, in terms of my faith life. And so you have both of those situations. You know, you have folks that convert because of a political kind of thing, and you have folks that convert for a religious, spiritual sort of thing. But, but here's Ali, you know, who I would argue even in the pre-internet age, was the most famous man in the world. And he happened to be not just an American, but an American Muslim. The other cultural sphere that you give a great deal of attention to is music, and you've, you've mentioned this a little bit here. But uh, you're talking about blues and jazz and hip-hop. Where do American Muslims fit into these various musical spheres? Yeah, and the music is so important. And so in very different kinds of ways, one of the people I dedicate the book to is Amit Erdogan, you know, a, a man that every American should know, the the founder of Atlantic Records, co-founder with uh, Herb Abramson. You know, and I don't know that you can understand American history. Forget about American musical history. I don't know that you can understand American history without looking at Atlantic Records, especially their rhythm and blues sides in the 50s and 60s, their soul sides in the, the 60s and 70s. I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal American cultural product, you know. And it's this Turkish Muslim guy who's involved in this. So literally in the creation of this, I mean, he was chairman of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, what's more American than rock and roll? Well, here's this Turkish Muslim guy who's the chairman of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then the foundation there. So at that level, but then at the level of the performers, of the musicians, you know, in the 21st century, it's really rap and hip hop. And you can make an argument that rap and hip hop secret language, if you will, is Islam. You know, not that the majority of artists who are rappers or hip hop artists, you know, are Muslim. They're, they're not. But a significant proportion of them are. And a significant number of people who, who aren't Muslim, you know, will bring in themes. So, you know, in the book, I talk, for example, the public enemy. You know, I think one of the most important, you know, I'm not going to tell you what your top five rap groups should be, but Public Enemy better be on that list of top five all time. And here's, you know, Chuck D, who's not a Muslim, but has has talked about the importance of Islam and uses, you know, some of the phrases there. So you get that in rap and hip hop. You go back a generation to jazz, you know, in the 40s and 50s. It was African-Americans and, j and jazz music, you know, the Ahmadiyya community, this sort of really interesting Muslim community here, did a lot of outreach in African-American community starting in the 20s. By the 40s, they converted folks. So you had jazz musicians. You know, When we think of uh, Yusuf Latif, when we think of Ahmed Jamal, when we think of the jazz messengers, are we thinking about the fact that when the jazz messengers was founded, it really was an all-Muslim group. You know, And so you have that kind of thing with regard to the jazz, with regard to the, the hip-hop. You know, uh, you have, going back to country music, you have uh, Kareem Salama, you know, post 9-11 came out as this, you know, American country singer. And so you have those kinds of things, which, which I think is so important. It's sort of fascinating to think that, you know, the book came out before Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature, which I thought was phenomenal to recognize the importance of popular song in America, that much more so than poets 
it's singers, it's musicians who, you know, tell our stories, who are the people that people, you know, listen to. So I think that's really important to think about, you know, the musical elements. And and that's one of those things that we think of, well, in Islam, music is haram. You know, Muslims don't play music. Well, they do. Every Muslim culture, you travel to India, you travel to uh, Egypt you travel to Lebanon, you're going to hear different kinds of, of music. You know, every culture has their own musical norms and things. And music is really important in the Islamic tradition. And so oftentimes we don't think about that. So it's a nice way of introducing that in there as well. You also deal with the fact that American Muslims have also literally shaped the building of America yeah. uh, in terms of its architectural landscape. So can you talk briefly about this? How, how sure. did American Muslims do this? Absolutely. And it goes right back to the beginnings of America. I mean, we think back last year when uh, Michelle Obama, you know, in one of her last sort of public speeches as first lady said, you know, I wake up every morning in a house built by slaves and people lost their minds. And all she's doing is stating fact that the White House was built by slave labor. So if we're talking literally about the physical making of America, so much of that uh, historically was slave labor. We don't think about the fact that, you know, slaves came from West Africa and that since at least the ninth century, Islam has been, you know, dominant in parts of West Africa. So why are we surprised that a percentage of the slaves who were brought over from West Africa were Muslim, you know, many of whom had to convert, many of whom had to hide their Muslim identity, but some of whom could practice that. So literally right from the foundational sort of building of America, you have slave labor that involves Muslim slave labor. So you have that part. But then going to the contemporary part, you know, a, a person, again, that everyone should know, uh, Fazlur Rahman Khan, this wonderful structural engineer from Bangladesh who dies in 1982. You know, it's this classic sort of American story of the immigrant kid who comes to America to go to school. He becomes an engineer. He's in Illinois. He works for Skidmore Owens, Owens Merrill, you know, the big uh, architectural design firm in Chicago ends up designing, you know, both the Sears Tower and the John Hancock building, not as the architect, but as the structural engineer who makes those tall buildings possible. And so he didn't work on the World Trade Center, but, you know, part of his designs were what allowed, you know, a building that tall to be built. And you think, okay, so 19 Muslims took down, you know, the World Trade Center and altered the skyline of New York. But if you look at the skyline of Chicago, it's a Muslim that's responsible for that. You know, can you imagine a Chicago skyline without the Sears Tower? Can you imagine a Chicago skyline without the John Hancock building? Well, it's a, it's this Bangladeshi Muslim guy who's responsible for that. So there's those kinds of, of, of things that are directly, you know, Muslims being involved in it. But then indirectly, this fascination with sort of Moorish architecture. So I teach at Loyola Marymount University, you know, in Los Angeles. Our central point on our campus is as a Catholic school is our chapel, the Chapel of the Sacred Heart, built in 1954. It's a Moorish building. It looks very much, you know, not like a, a mosque in that sense, but, you know, there's a tower that looks conspicuously like a minaret. It's that white building with a red tiled roof. There's sort of this interesting floral design around the roof that's sort of, 
you know, pseudo-Arabic, you know, kind of thing. So to say, like, like right here in Los Angeles, you know, what is Moorish architecture? But this hearkening back to this connection with Islam. And then, you know, in the book, I tell the story of a friend who goes to USC and confuses the Shrine Auditorium, you know, with the, the mosque at USC, uh, Masjid Umar. You know, and this idea that you look at this building, you look at the Shrine Auditorium, this looks like a mosque, you know, so why has this building been built, you know, in the 1920s? Well, you have this American fascination, you know, not necessarily with the Arab, with the Islamic world so much as, as with the Arab world, especially after the discovery of King Tut's tomb, this American thing called, you know, the Shriners. So you have like the Syria Mosque in Illinois, you have the Shrine in Los Angeles. So you see these buildings that look for all the world like Islamic buildings that aren't. So you have, you know, Americans building Muslim kinds of buildings. You have Muslims building Muslim kinds of buildings. You have Muslims, you know, building mosques in America. By that I mean, you know, the Muslim buildings. But Muslims building, you know, other buildings in America, whether they're, you know, the the engineer that designs them or the slaves that, that you know, literally build the buildings. So there's a long history there. Well, Amir, it's a, it's a wonderful book and you do a great job of really uh, rising the visibility of American Muslims and their cultural contributions. So... Thanks for spending some time, and thanks for writing a wonderful book. Thank you for this. This has been great. Again, we were talking about Muslims and the Making of America, published with Baylor University Press. Thanks to Amir Hussein for joining us today, and thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of First Impressions.